The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. Arahato Sama Sambutasa Buddhang Damang Sangang Namasami I've spent the last three months in northern Minnesota. And during that time, the Common Ground community, and in particular Mark, have been... Uh, very supportive. So any wholesome karma that arises from the Dhamma talk tonight, then I wish to offer it to Mark's father, in memory of Mark's father who recently passed away. In the time in the forest, when I arrived, it was very, very lush and green. By the time I left, all that was left on the branches was just a handful of leaves, which, of course, is a simile that the Buddha used for his own teachings. So it seemed an apt time to recognize the impermanence of the situation and migrate. I spent the time in a cabin on the shore of a lake, but much of the time that I actually spent was in a tent overlooking a bay, a yellow and orange tent which I grew quite fond of. And just living in a tent in the forest, you don't really feel like anyone special. And I'm not. And whatever potential there is to practice the Buddha's teachings, to realize the Buddha's teachings, it's there in all of us equally. There's nothing really unique or special about someone who's Raise your hand if you can't hear Ajahn and I'll turn up the... What's this? So living in a tent close to nature, then the simple things become apparent. Like there was one time, not too long ago, 
where I was sitting in the tent and a bee had gotten stuck in a pocket in the tent. And it seems to be what happens to a lot of us in various ways. <clears throat> the bee on its own volition flew into that pocket and there was uh, an easy way out. But once it was in the pocket, it just kept walking back and forth, back and forth, very frustrated, confused, couldn't find a way out, couldn't find any freedom, just walking back and forth. So then you end up in a position where you you need someone to give you a, a little assistance. And in that situation, I was able to um, have a slightly larger view of the situation than the bee. So I was able to help it escape. So often in life, then, we find ourselves in pockets in the tent, in little ways. And we have to rely on Kalyanamita. Kalyanamita means a good friend. Now, a good friend is someone who is going to encourage us in wholesome ways of living, encourage us uh, to awaken. When I saw that bee, it reminded me of a time when I was in Thailand. In Thailand, you can just go off into the national forests and you have your mosquito net uh, and umbrella and you can just find a space off in the jungle and there are elephants and tigers and uh, many, many other uh, wild animals. And you don't need permits. You just go wherever you want. But they also had regular campgrounds and one day when I was on alms round in the campground, or this pecking sound. And I went and looked, and in a, a place where there was a mirror near the public toilet, there was a crow, and it was pecking on the mirror. And it was frustrated, and it was fighting, and it was, and, uh, it was making a lot of noise, flapping its wings. And I watched, and I realized that it thought its reflection was another bird, and it was fighting it more and more violently. The more the other bird in the reflection wouldn't, you know, wouldn't back down, the more angry he got. <laughs> Just kept fighting, slashing, flapping its wings, hitting its beak up against the mirror. I thought, hmm. How many of us do that? Because so much of life is really just our own reflection, what we project. And that's what we bounce on. So then we look for a way out of the pocket. How do you get out of a tent pocket if you don't have someone to help you? But fortunately, we, we at least have guidance. 
Now these days, mindfulness meditation is very well known. But mindfulness is only one part of the Noble Eightfold Path, so it needs to be taken in context of a, a whole lifestyle. For example, mindfulness that is dissociated with morality or sila is not going to be very useful. We can be mindful of lying, mindful of stealing, but that doesn't encourage the mind to open. It doesn't encourage the heart to open. It's not going to be leading to awakening. It doesn't help our relationships with other human beings. So the, the Buddha taught a whole lifestyle, which we call the Noble Eightfold Path, but even that is just a a nutshell for a lifestyle that incorporates every aspect of our daily life. And mindfulness has different aspects to it. There's the more passive side of just being aware of whatever is happening, but then there's the more active side as well. And both are essential. The more passive side is being firmly grounded in one's body. So when we're sitting, we, we're completely aware that we're sitting. You can feel your body. So even when you're listening or when you're discussing with other people, keep grounded in your body. Stay grounded. When you want to change posture, you know, clearly know, okay, now I'm going to change posture. And be aware of the, of the body gradually changing, moving. When we're walking, then that's an opportunity. Walk from here to our car, that's an opportunity to practice walking meditation. Walk through the supermarket in groceries, that's an opportunity to practice walking meditation. When we're drinking tea, drinking water, eating food, going to the toilet, brushing your teeth, washing, how grounded are we in the body? Every sensation is an opportunity for developing that continuity of mindfulness, which will lead to a sense of being balanced, uh, settled, grounded. When we see things, hear things, smell things, when we taste things, when thoughts arise in our mind, then we can be aware. And it's important to have that amount of vigilance, because there's so much happening, and it's affecting us. Whatever's arising, whatever mood, thought emotions arising, it will be directing the course of our life, whether we're mindful of it or not, whether we're aware or not. We all have mindfulness to some degree, but we want to train it so that we're, we're very clear. So that we don't get swept away by waves. But this more passive side is only one aspect of mindfulness. When the Buddha was talking about developing mindfulness, he never spoke of it in terms of being taken out of the Noble Eightfold Path. So you always have to take it in context. All steps of the Noble Eightfold Path need both mindfulness, but also right effort. And right effort is about 
making that active step, responding wisely, understanding, not just, not just being aware of something, but understanding the meaning of what we're being aware of, understanding, is this arising from wholesome roots or unwholesome roots of the mind? And this is the most common way that the Buddha would talk about what we experience and right effort, wholesome and unwholesome. At least that's our English translation for kusala and unkusala, akusala. Now, any mood, emotion, thought, motivation, intention that's arising from a selfish desire, any desire that's not, not aiming towards awakening, would be based on sense of self. Selfish desire, anger, frustration, even the most subtle forms, and delusion, particularly delusion around sense of self, me, what I identify with, particularly around not understanding the Four Noble Truths. So this active side of mindfulness is a real guide. In the forest tradition, when the teachers talk about mindfulness, they don't just say sati, which means mindfulness. They'll usually use the compound term satipanya, which means mindfulness slash wisdom. So it's not just being aware, not just being passively aware of what's happening, but being aware is the first step. You acknowledge it, you understand it, and then you respond wisely to that. So then it leads to a very active, engaged way of practicing, a dynamic interaction with life that understands how karma works. Start to really understand, well, this law of karma, this is not at all fate. This is um, an active, dynamic interaction with everything that's happened in the past, the results that are constantly manifesting, and then responding, how we respond, and literally creates our future. The Buddha was very detailed in suggesting ways that we respond wisely to things that arise. Sometimes when, when thoughts arise, if we recognize that they're unwholesome, motivation is, is based on anger, or we're, we're, we're feeling frustrated, or we're perception of somebody else that is um, a negative or, or causing us a sense of friction, stress, etc. If we can recognize that, then if mindfulness is very strong and the unwholesome thought, mood is not too strong, then sometimes just being aware will make it disappear. That's the most subtle way of responding. But sometimes it doesn't just disappear. We're aware, yeah, I'm feeling angry. But just because I'm aware of it doesn't mean it goes away. Or yes, I'm feeling lonely. Or yes, I'm feeling, I'm feeling depressed. 
But just just being aware of it doesn't necessarily make it go away. Or yes, I'm having uh, selfish desires which I know are, are not for my benefit, and yet I can't stop just by being aware. It's not strong enough. So then the Buddha recommends many other ways to approach that more active, very active side of it. I mean, one is paying very close attention to how we perceive things. Now, if we perceive things in an unwise way, yeah, then that's going to encourage unwholesome states of mind and strengthen the ones that do arise. So how we perceive things is essentially how we live our life. We create the world in which we live by how we perceive things, the projections how we perceive other people, the labels that we put on other people, the labels that we put on situations. Something may be very simple. It's just very simple. Maybe experience is pleasant or unpleasant, whether it's internal or external. But very quickly we can perceive it as, oh, this is a person, this is a man, this is a woman, this is a friend, this is a foe. I like this, I don't like this, this is delicious, I don't like this, yucky. This is called this, this person has this name, this history, this food is called this. It's healthy, it's unhealthy, it's organic, it's not organic, I shouldn't eat it, it's healthy. Well, this article says I shouldn't. You know, it can get very, very complicated, and the more it does, the more we project on life, and we create this reality which then if we take very seriously, if we take it too seriously, it can cause some suffering. But if we recognize, if we go back to the source, there's a Pali term called Yoniso Manasikara, which means like investigation, which takes takes the investigation back to its source. Uh, contemplating things, say, where, where does this come from? What's the source of this? Why is it this way? Go back to its source. It's just seeing, hearing. Someone says something that we don't like. They criticize us. They blame us for something. It's just hearing. We can go back to that. Keep it simple. So how we pay attention to things will make a large difference. If we notice that we are paying attention to one aspect of something and it's giving rise to unwholesome states of mind, then we don't have to just buy into that. Because everything has many aspects to it. So we say, okay, well this person, if I pay attention to these aspects of this person, I just keep these perpetuating these cycles of frustration or, or you know, difficult memories. But if I pay attention to this aspect of the person, a different aspect, which is equally valid, then maybe it gives rise to thoughts of feeling sorry for the person, compassion. Maybe you start to feel grateful for those things that the, the good things that the person has done. So this is called Yoni So Manasikara. It goes back to the source 
and then responds wisely. And this is the important thing. It's not just being aware, but how do we respond wisely, the active side of it. So sometimes you have to substitute certain thoughts arising in mind for whatever reason. Just being mindful of them is not making them disappear. It's not leading to to the sense of spacious peace. And you may have to take a more active role and say, well, okay, I can't just stop thinking, but what I can do is substitute the thoughts. I can intentionally think other thoughts which are going to encourage wisdom, encourage the growth of wisdom. Thinking, you, thinking is not wisdom. You can't think your way into insight, but you can encourage the mind through thought along certain paths, going in certain directions. And this helps the mind to become internally settled, so to become settled, uh, internally quiet. Sometimes you have to look at the danger in a thought. Know that, okay, well, I want to do this, but I know it's not good for me. But this thought keeps recurring. I know it's not good for me. But then we can actually focus on, well, what happens if I follow through? What are the karmic results going to be if I follow through with this particular habit, this behavior? What are, is it really going to lead to my own benefit in the long run? Is it going to uh, lead to anyone else's harm? And if we follow through and, and know that, okay, well, this is not going to be good for me, it's not going to be good for other people, then that kind of contemplation of the danger of certain types of motivations to do things will help to be able to let go of it. And then the mind can go quiet. Interestingly enough, sometimes the Buddha encourages us not to pay attention to things. Sometimes we get obsessed with something, and one of the ways that the Buddha encourages us to respond is, well, just don't pay attention to it. Pay attention to something else. It seems so simple, but often it's it feels like it's out of control. Thoughts are out of our control, but they're not. If you take a more active role. So taking an active role in what's happening in our life, our, our minds is not necessarily motivated by wisdom. It can come from a wish to control, maybe a compulsion to control. Uh, it can come from strong ego. It can come from many unwholesome sources as well. So you have to be very careful. The mind's very tricky. Every step of the practice, even if 
we're doing something which is good, very quickly what we call defilement, so the unwholesome states of mind can get in there and, and, uh, and ruin it. So keeping a pure motivation is very important. Why are we doing this? Keeping the big picture in mind. If the mind sometimes just seems like it's thinking out of control, not even about important things, but you, it just seems like it's going out of control. It's not realistic to think, oh, I'll just stop my thoughts and be peaceful. As long as we're alive, we're going to have thoughts. Temporarily, they can cease. Mind can become internally quiet. But when they're really racing out of control, then one way that you can respond to that is, is you visualize your thoughts like running. But then, so, well, why am I running when I can walk? Even just visualizing that can help the, the thoughts slow down. Let's just walk through the thoughts. And let's just, and why am I walking quickly through my thoughts when I could just walk slowly through my thoughts? And then why am I walking with my thoughts at all? I could just stand with my thoughts. Just stand firm with your thoughts. They're still there. And so, well, why am I standing when I could sit? Why am I sitting when I could lie down? And gradually, through this type of process, you can, can slow the thoughts down, get a handle on them, and slow them down to the, to the speed where our awareness can envelop them. Awareness is, is like a, you know, when it's working well, when it's strong, when it's clear, it's like this sphere around us. And we're aware of what's, what's coming into our field of perception. Whether it's with our, our external senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or the mind. As soon as a thought arises, mood, uh, reaction arises, then we're there. But mindfulness is, is bigger. It encompasses that. And then we can respond wisely. So much of our training in the monasteries in Thailand is learning how to respond wisely to certain situations. And a lot of it is just done through observation. You go into certain situations, and you just have to watch. You have to just watch very carefully. And every situation is new. Every situation is unique. As soon as we start to get into a rut, then beware. The way we responded yesterday, which may have been absolutely perfectly appropriate, um, will not necessarily be the appropriate way to respond, or the beneficial way to respond today. So I was watching, okay, in this particular situation, who's here, what's the mood, what's the feeling? And then, okay, from that place of stillness, we respond. From that place of understanding, we respond. So this is the combination of mindfulness, but also right effort. Right effort in every activity, every moment. Now there's, there are extreme occasions where sometimes thoughts come into our mind and they threatened to completely 
overtake our our intelligence or our wisdom. And and uh, there are times where the the Buddha encourages that if if there are extreme situations, for example, you're so angry, you literally want to kill somebody. Right? And you feel like I just I'm going to kill him. <laughs> and I don't care that I'm an intelligent, supposedly sensitive, educated person. I'm going to kill him. I'm just so angry. I can't take it anymore. And if if you're actually going to kill them, then it you need a response which is equal to the task. You don't want to just be aware, oh, I'm aware of intentions to kill somebody, and I'm aware of wielding a knife. <laughs> I'm aware of police sirens. <laughs> right? I mean, this is not what the Buddha meant by mindfulness. Okay, now I'm aware of my mind and body are on fire with with furious anger, and I want to act on it. What am I going to do to <laughs> make sure I don't make any bad comma? And interestingly enough, like in the most extreme form uh, that the Buddha recommends of uh, responding to unwholesome thoughts is. You just clench your teeth. <laughs> you just clench your teeth and say, mm. Mm. No kill. <laughs> but you want to start with the subtle responses first. <laughs> you don't want to overuse the, the tool. You know, you want to use a sledgehammer when you just need a finishing hammer. <laughs> you know, this aspect of awareness, continuity of awareness that leads to mind becoming more peaceful, goes hand in hand with investigating things in daily life. And the Buddha is always encouraging us, not, you know, don't just take things at face value. Don't just take his teachings at face value. Don't just take our assumptions of what other people are like at face value. Don't take our assumptions of who we think we are at face value. Investigate, contemplate, is this really the way it is? Why are things the way they are? What do I, what, how much is, is real? I mean, what is real? What creates a sense of reality that we, we call our world? How much really comes from other people? How much comes from our interpretations of other people, our interpretations of particular situations. 
So in Pali, it's called Dhamma Vichaya. The investigation. Dhammas, in this sense, refers to things. Things. Investigate everything. And then life becomes really fun, interesting. No matter what happens, you can think, hmm, why did that happen? What things, what responses, what interpretations lead to feeling happy, lead to feeling peaceful, are going to be beneficial to myself, beneficial to other people around me, and keep looking. And what responses, what ways of perceiving things are going to lead to the opposite. Then we find, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a victim. We have the power to radically transform our life. Use it. It's a great opportunity. Otherwise, we, we create a prison thinking we're going to protect ourselves with walls of various kinds, but really it, it doesn't <clears throat> protect us. It just creates a, a prison. So using mindfulness, it's like the using investigation, Dhamma Vichaya. That's going to lead to bringing up of energy. You ever feel just really low energy? What happened to my energy? It just seems to be draining out sometimes. The mind in its pure state is bright and it's energetic and then it will manifest in the body. If the body is relatively healthy and we still don't feel energetic, then what's going on? Certainly investigating will bring up energy. Because we realize, oh, you know, this is really important. You know, this is interesting. Dhamma practices, great. It's awesome. And that type of attitude then makes it fun. And when it's fun, it brings up energy. And then it starts to become enjoyable. So energy in Pali is called virya. And joy is an important aspect of the practice called piti. Now in practicing the Dhamma, it's not going to be that it's always joyful. You have to know that at the outset. Think, oh, well, every day will just be more and more peaceful, more, more and more wise, more and more blissful, until finally I just peek out with some <laughs> bliss that is the highest happiness of awakening, and it's just all uphill. <laughs> I mean. It, But when we start to practice, when we really do start to practice, uh, then it's, it's a bit like cleaning out your closet. You know, you open the door. It looks nice and tidy. 
if you keep the door closed. As soon as you open, <laughs> soon as you open the door and start bringing all that stuff out, it's like, oh man. And then the work starts, and a lot of that is allowing the results of old karma to manifest, to become conscious, and being patient with it. Patience is so important in the practice. So don't expect it to always be joyful. But when it is joyful, then uh, don't worry about being attached to it. If you're aware of it, just recognize. Okay, well, joy is actually a result of past good karma. When the mind starts to become peaceful, naturally, it's pleasant. It's great that it works that way. The more we understand things in accordance with reality, the the less we create problems, the more easy life becomes, uh, the easier it is to maintain a sense of balance and being centered in all activities. Great. It feels happy. Beware of uh, a little voice that says, Oh, don't get attached to that joy. You don't deserve it. That's... Feeling pretty happy, it's, well, it's not very Lutheran. <laughs> I don't think my Lutheran relatives would approve. When the mind does start to become peaceful, then enjoy it. Even if you can just take, you know, one breath and it just feels so delicious, like you're drinking in just this beautiful, smooth, clean, wonderful, refreshing air. And you exhale and the whole body relaxes. That's great. Even if you do, do that once a day, it's fantastic. Because the mind will incline towards that which is pleasant. The delusion is that we need to arrange the external world for us to be happy. But when we give our mind more information, when we give it correct information, then it will be happy to incline towards finding happiness in Dhamma practice, finding happiness in a simple breath. You realize, oh, well, I'm breathing anyways. I might as well enjoy it. It's free. You start to find that, okay, well, if I let go of something, if I, if I let go of something that was causing me uh, stress that I perceived as a problem, and I let go of it, then pay attention to the cessation of the problem. Instead of just picking up a new problem, you know, take some time just to pay attention. Okay, well, that problem has ceased. Great. That's great. It's really great. And because then that, that gives information to the mind which will then naturally incline to want to let go more. It will, it will naturally incline towards breathing mindfully and being relaxed and, and centered. But we have to encourage that. 
It's like if we only shine our eye of mindfulness, our light of mindfulness on areas which seem to be problems or stressful or or on the, on the anger and the greed or the self-hate or, you know, then that's all the information that goes into our mind. But if we if we make the conscious effort to, well, let's shine it on the things that are going well. Let's shine it on all the wonderful things that are happening in life. And suddenly gratitude starts to arise, even if we don't intentionally bring up gratitude. Start to shine it on uh, all the good things that are happening in other people's lives. And suddenly you don't feel jealous of other people anymore. You just feel, oh, that's wonderful. Isn't that great? You know? Good things are happening to other people around us. Buddha encouraged us to be happy. The Buddha encouraged us to seek happiness in the places which are going to uh, be like a, a perpetual well of happiness from within. And the more we do that, the more tranquil the mind becomes. And the Buddha encouraged us to to, to seek out places which are leading to a sense of tranquility. Seek out situations which will lead to a sense of tranquility. And again, this is the active aspect of it. It's not simply, you know, whatever situation we're in, then just be mindful. But there is this sense of when I do have a choice, then let's make a wise decision of... Um, where I live, how I spend my time, who I hang out with. <coughs> because we are influenced by our environment. We can't get away from that. As long as we're not fully enlightened, we're going to be significantly influenced by our environment, the, the people we're with, the situations. One of the great things about the last Heart of the Forest retreat that we did was part of the daily schedule was getting everyone out on the lake in kayaks and canoes. And we did it all in silence. It was part of the daily meditation schedule. Two o'clock every afternoon. Everyone heads down. All, everyone has their own assigned kayak and canoe. and We all go to a particular part of the lake and just sit quietly and float in the sunshine, surrounded by the forest and, and uh, the blue sky and the blue lake. And even if people feel like, well, I don't know how to meditate, they go out and float on the lake for a while, they start to feel tranquil. We even had a dog on the retreat. Initially, the dog hadn't canoed much. <laughs> 
But uh, it didn't, didn't take bamboo long. And uh, very quickly, um, kind of peacefully sitting in the boat. Tranquility has this positive effect. It's a factor of enlightenment. It's not something which is optional. Joy is not optional in the, in the path to enlightenment. If you, if you just want to you think, well, I'm just going to do the hard slog to enlightenment. Pain and suffering. First noble truth. Like, you misunderstand the first noble truth. Everything is suffering. I'm terrible. That, what, that, that's why I'm going to destroy myself. <laughs> destroy my delusion of self. And it's just, I'm just going to grit my teeth. <clears throat> that doesn't work very well. It's not sustainable, but also it, it, joy is an indispensable factor of enlightenment. If you go for too long and you're not deriving joy from this practice, then question, okay, what am I doing? How am I approaching it? Right? It doesn't have to do with the meditation technique. There's no one meditation technique that's going to be the be-all and end-all that's, that's going to just do the trick if you master a technique. With Ajahn Chah, whatever technique you're using, you know, within a pretty wide spectrum, he said, fine. He was more interested in people's attitude, how they use the technique. I mean, you can, you can approach mindfulness of breathing in a very controlling, uptight Goal-oriented, tense way. <laughs> you know, oh, you can just just sit and relax, watch, breathe. It's great. Nothing to worry about, right? And then you don't you don't have to force yourself to be happy because it's natural. We start to be happy. Joy starts to arise. So joy is an indispensable factor in awakening. Mindfulness is an indispensable factor. Investigation is indispensable. Energy is indispensable. Enlightenment doesn't happen by grace, at least not in the Buddhist teachings. It's a path of personal effort. Now, it's not a path which... Your ego can say, I am going to, I'm going to do this practice. Initially, there, there might be some. And the ego can be used in a, in a way to overcome itself. I'm going to practice the Dhamma, put forth effort, motivate myself to raise the energy. In order to raise the energy necessary to, to really watch. Because if we don't have energy, it's difficult to be very clearly mindful. Mind just becomes kind of foggy. Or even if we're aware of something, if we don't have enough energy, it's like, well, I know this is unwholesome, but I just don't have the energy to do anything about it. And then we're kind of stuck. So energy is, is indispensable. The path of effort. 
tranquility is indispensable. You can't just have insight. If it was all about just, okay, well, let's just investigate, 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 it's good, but it doesn't really have the power to, to go deep beyond the surface. So with all of these factors, balance is, is the, the ultimate way that you judge, okay, well, what, what do I need to focus on? At this point in my life, where am I going out of balance? One particular day, or maybe even just within one particular meditation session. Let me start off a bit out of balance, and then it kind of comes into balance. But if we're not careful, if we're not really watching, then it goes out of balance again. Maybe initially we got too much energy, too, too restless, and we're able to relax. But then we become too relaxed, and then it goes out of balance and gets spacey and goes off in trains of thought. And you don't want to relax more if it's going off the side of the path. On that side, you actually want to bring up a bit of energy and bring it back into balance. So watching energy levels. Too much energy, not enough energy. Moment by moment. Too much energy, mind gets lost in thought. Too little energy, we space out, get lost in thought. When the mind's really in balance, when we're aware, there's awareness there, sense of tranquility, there's enough energy, joy starts to arise, and we're like, yeah, this, this feels good. And then you put the effort into maintaining that. Start with the eyes closed and the body still, but then with the eyes open, walking back and forth, doing simple tasks, Whatever. If you're driving the car, great opportunity to do sitting meditation. It's a lot to pay attention to. It's important to pay attention. And so you don't have to turn on the radio or do other things. You just say, okay, this is the time for meditation. And then we end up having a lots of opportunities for meditating all day long. So when tranquility becomes stronger and stronger, then it turns into what the Buddha calls samadhi, which is usually translated as concentration, but sometimes the Pali word is, is better. It can lead to less confusion. But samadhi is like a, a deeper stillness of the mind and becomes really internally settled, calm, peaceful. It's like a very deep peace. And there's a certain amount of wisdom that comes just from samadhi because as soon as we, as soon as we're calmer, we tend to see things clearer. When the mind's jumping all over the place, we can't see anything clearly. When the mind starts to calm down, it's like, oh, right, now I can see what's in front of me. It's like the Buddhist similes of the water. You know, whenever the water is stirred up, you can't see what's in the water. You can't see the bottom of the pond. But just allowing it to settle. And then you can see very clearly when the mind is clear. So samadhi is like a very, very deep lake. Still, peaceful, cool. When the Buddha calls it one-pointed, it's not like it is squished down to one point. It's 
one-pointed in the sense that there's, it's unified. It's spacious, it's bright, but it's not cut into pieces. It, it's unified. It's just aware of one thing. And Ajahn Chah said, if you want to make the body strong, you know, you move it around. But if you want to make the mind strong, then just let it be still. Because the longer it's still, the more uh, energy builds, the more clarity builds. And then when you integrate that back into daily mindfulness practice, it's like, wow. When I brush my teeth, now I'm aware of every little sensation, you know, wise response. <laughs> and who knows, oh, you know, previously I wasn't, I wasn't aware that I wasn't brushing the back teeth, but now, with super mindfulness powered by samadhi, <laughs> so it's even good for dental hygiene. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it's like that in everyday experience, when, when the mind's just energized with clarity, suddenly we become aware of things that we weren't aware of. It's like, wow, I never noticed how beautiful that tree was. When the mind's calm, sometimes you go out and you just see, you know, a dead leaf on the path, and you go, oh, it's so beautiful, it's so profound, it's, you know, it's encompassing all of the truths of the universe in one dead leaf. You know, it, it's kind of beautiful in its impermanence, in its color, and you know that it used to be green and thriving, and now it's fallen, and, and it's in this process of beginning to rot, and 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 that's where the power of, of penetrating insight can come in. You know, not just not just looking at the surface, say leaf, leaf. But you, know, you you see one thing, and then you realize that within that one thing, it encompasses all of the truths of everything in the universe. So as that leaf, so is is my body. So is my life. So is the body of everyone else. Just like a. a leaf in autumn on the path. So that leads to an equanimity. An equanimity is a wise responding to every single situation. But we don't get thrown off. If we really understand situations, if we, if we deeply understand the way something is happening, or deeply understand our own conditioning. Then that leads to a, an internal quietude, a stability, kind of an, an equanimity that becomes unshakable. And then we realize, oh, we really are no one special. We created this whole circus in our minds about who we are, who we think we are, who everyone else is, and what they're doing to us. And uh, in the end, you know, we're really no one special. We're just another aspect of nature. And there's a lot of 
peace in realizing that. And when I identify with this body as being me, that's only realistic on a conventional level. If I investigate or identify with this thought, this personality, these memories, these plans, these this family, this association with other people, if I identify all that as being me, that's only valid on a certain conventional level. But beyond that, it's just my own projections. Our own projections. It's just the world that we create. And then we realize we're just like a leaf that falls in autumn. You know, beautiful, encompassing all the truths of the universe, and yet also quite ordinary. I offer this for your reflection this evening. Anybody has any questions? Please feel free. For something more detailed? <laughs> I, I, I wasn't, but I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, very kind of you to ask for their benefit. <clears throat> it depends on what you mean by detached. Now, If it's detachment in terms of practicing correctly, there's no such thing as too much detachment. But that's just an English translation, right? And then we choose that word to um, to correspond with some Pali Buddhist term. But then everyone may bring their own understanding and history to that particular word, detachment. Well, what does that mean? Right? Some people may understand it in an unwholesome sense or an unbeneficial sense, like emotionally detached. I should just—I shouldn't care about anybody. Uh, just be detached. Sorry, children. <laughs> Buddha says I have to let you go. <laughs> I used to fix dinner. I just want to let you know it's not going to happen. I used to give you warmth and care and love, but now I'm detached. 
So obviously that's that's not how Dhamma manifests. When Dhamma is really practiced, people become more kind, more loving, more open, more sensitive to other people. So then we have to look, well, what do we mean by that term? And this is part of the problem with, you know, this phase of bringing Buddhism and Asian tradition into the West. You know, we choose a particular English term, and unless there's a broader understanding of the practice, people can glom onto one term and really take it in the wrong direction, really misinterpret it. Now, if we're giving love and kindness and help, and then someone responds with complaining, lack of gratitude, criticism, then it's important to be detached from any expectations of how we assumed the other person would respond, how we hoped the other person would respond, how they should respond, being detached from our reactions. Detached just means not clinging, not grasping. So if we do something, but... we may not be fully aware of what we're grasping to in the process. Even if we're doing good things, there can still be a lot of grasping there. And sometimes that, if it doesn't go the way we want or the way we expect it, then that grasping can manifest. And we realize, oh, I was really holding on there. Buddha encouraged us to grasp onto sila, samadhi, and panya, morality, concentration, samadhi, and wisdom, temporarily, in, a, in the way that you would grasp onto a tool to use it. You have to, you have to use all the tools that the Buddha gives us Right view is a tool. Precepts are an important tool. Samadhi is a tool. Meditation is a tool. These are all tools which are not ends in themselves, but are there to build a whole lifestyle which then has the potential to culminate in uh, deep insight and awakening. But tools are like, like a hammer. You know, if you, don't, if you don't grasp the hammer tightly, you know, in a balanced way, is going to be very dangerous. You grasp it, you grasp something too loosely, you grasp a tool too loosely, and you, it's going to slip out of your hand and maybe hit someone. Or maybe hit your own head. If you grasp it too tightly, it's just stressful. You're going to grasp a hammer too tightly, and it's, it just creates stress, and we become exhausted. Right? So, we'll, how do we learn to grasp in a in a conventional way, um, which is going to make sense. You know, in the same way that, you know, if you, you pick up meditation, it's a tool. Just beware of, even 
when we're practicing correctly, we do something good, we have good intentions, defilements can come in from any direction, from behind, sneak up on us. Okay, great. We decide we're going to follow the five precepts purely. And then we become kind of egotistical or become critical of other people who don't keep the five precepts. Right? It's like, oops. Grasping maybe too tightly. Or say, well, I'm going to keep the five precepts. I do a retreat that keeps eight precepts. As soon as the retreat ends, then uh, we have a pot brownie. (laughs) Now that may be grasping the tool too loosely. (laughs) I'm not going to name names. But in terms of letting go, you know, letting go of defilements, a little is good, a lot is great. Let go completely, that's what Ajahn Shah said, let go completely, then discover the happiness of the Buddha. Yeah, first step is always just acknowledging the presence because we may have an image of ourselves which um, which doesn't want to look at certain things, certain types of thoughts, certain reactions. So, you know, really owning up to and acknowledging whatever thoughts are there is always an important first step. And then seeing, well, how strong are they? If they're just kind of niggling more petty, not that strong, but then uh, being aware of them might work. Substituting a different thought might work. You have to experiment, see what works uh, for you. Different days, different things might work. It's not going to be one answer. The Buddha never said that, you know, this is just one, one tool. He gave a whole range of things that might be appropriate or effective on different days, different situations. You know, when things are irritating, one of the ways that we can overcome that is instead of looking at every single irritating thought, well, how about if we just develop the perception of its opposite? that will kind of balance it out. So that's why we have metta practice, loving-kindness. We're practicing compassion, where we really focus in and look at people's 
difficulties, people's suffering, people's pain. And that can be very heart-opening. So if we do those types of practices regularly, it will tend to nullify or, or be stronger than the little niggling thoughts of irritation. Bottom line is what works. Sometimes you just need a little bit of steering the mind. Other times you you may really need something a bit stronger. But hopefully it never gets to the point where you actually have to clench your teeth. Clench your teeth, press your tongue against the roof of your mouth. Crush the mind with the mind. That's uh, definitely last resort. We don't normally recommend that. suffering in the world and then we begin to suffer. And then we're now no longer in a position where we can really help. If we're if we really become sad, depressed, um, frustrated, you know, righteous anger, you know, all of these things are certainly understandable, but then it no longer puts us in a position where we can really respond wisely. So compassion is, is is very much together with, with wisdom. You know, understanding the plight of animals, for example. And yet, understanding, like real wisdom, will know there are things that we can do, potentially. There's probably a lot that we can't do. You know, we we, we don't have the ability to alleviate all the suffering in the world. So that's where equanimity comes into play. Now, equanimity is not an indifference. Equanimity is far from it. Equanimity is like, I understand the enormity of the suffering in the world, and if I let it, it will break my heart, or I'll, I'll never experience any happiness, because I'll always be feeling all this very real suffering out there. But that's not, that's not adding more enlightenment to the world. Right? If we're going to do anything beneficial, then, okay, well, let's, under, let's not deny that this is happening. But there's a certain amount of understanding 
Well, if I'm going to alleviate it even in small ways, then probably the best thing I can do is is to maintain a sense of, of brightness, happiness, and then act from there. It's hard. It's, a, it's balance. It, it is balance. And, and uh, if we fall out of balance sometimes, it's fine. You know, just, just, know, just know that, okay, I'm not in balance right now. But um, you know that you can come back into balance. So compassion doesn't mean that we ourselves take on other people's suffering. We can, we can try to make, we can empathize. And if you really understand the nature, or the universal nature, of how beings harm each other and how endemic that is to our situation, then it's a very powerful motivation for, uh, for liberation. Because we can only do so much in the world to, to make the world a better place. We try to do what we can, yeah? do the best we can, but it's no no way we can make the world a perfect place. It's just impossible. Uh, and uh, a deeply understanding that is a powerful motivation for Dhamma practice. How to acknowledge your, your ego if it's trying to control you? If it's trying to control you? Yeah, that's what egos do. <laughs> that's uh ego ego is all about control and uh, we'll try to control ourselves try to control our life try to control other people try to control the situations I mean one thing you can do is look at the, the drawbacks so, boy, I'm you know I'm getting getting too puffed up here. My ego can't you know came into play here. You know, if for example, if someone criticizes us, then we find out how much how strong our ego is, right? <laughs> or if someone praises us, we find out how much ego we have. Or it's more subtle then. You know, someone praises us, and we think, yeah, that's justified. <laughs> The ego that, but if someone criticizes us, especially if we think it's unfair, then it's like, mm. yeah. That, oh. So all situations are an opportunity for learning something. With the so-called ego, one thing that it's very beneficial to do is just look to see what we identify with, because that's how we build up this delusion of a sense of self, this illusion of me, mine. This is my life, and all these aspects of it. But where does that come from? Moment by moment, um, we see something, we experience something. This feeling of I am experiencing, I am seeing. Yeah? You know, just now I see you, right? But that reinforces my sense of self if I'm not mindful. Yeah? Really, it's just seeing. Seeing is happening. 
hearing is happening, there are sensations in the body. We sit a long time on the floor, get more and more sensations in the body. Think, my body hurts. I want, you know, I, 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 me, mine. And uh, that all reinforces the sense of self. But if there's enough mindfulness, you just stay with uh, what's really close to reality. Okay, there's just sensations. Initially, they're pleasant. Now they're unpleasant. But they're just sensations, physical sensations, unpleasant sensations. Right? And then watch how the identification pops in there with other people. See someone, we know them, my friend, my mother, my father. I like, I dislike. That's the big one, moment by moment. If something is pleasant, then very quickly, I like, I want, I want more. How can I hold on? I want to grasp it, I want to keep it. Right. Every step of the way, it's reinforcing this delusion of me and mine. And then from that, we gradually build up this very strong habit called a sense of self. Obviously, it has conventional use, but it has a lot of drawbacks. And ultimately, it doesn't serve our purpose, and ultimately, it doesn't really exist. It's just based on delusion. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.